I had my notes from uh, our Sunday school, our adult Bible class this morning, the first time. So uh, I am teaching on Matthew, not Psalms. So I thought I'd go get the right notes. Uh, if you uh, if you would take your Bibles and open them to Matthew, chapter fifteen. That's on page eight hundred and twenty-one of the Pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, <clears throat> we encourage you to grab that and open there. Also, if you don't have a Bible, take this with you. If you don't believe me, there's a note right inside that says, this is our gift to you. So we want everybody to have a Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible, when you leave, take this with you. We have a bunch in back, and we always come and fill them in if somebody takes one. So it's our gift to you. We're going to be reading from verse 21 of chapter 15 all the way through verse 12 of chapter 16 today. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain, sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. 
and the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, as we gather in this room, every one of us is in a different frame of mind. We've had different experiences this last week. We're here for different reasons. We have different questions on our mind. We have different uh, feelings right now as we approach your word. But we're all united in this. We need to hear from you. And so we together, in our varying places, bow our knees and ask the God of the universe to use his word to speak into our hearts. Show yourself to us. Teach us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're watching a movie and the setting is the 1950s segregated American South. The hero of the movie is a tall, broad-shouldered, but mysterious man named Leroy. And early in the movie... Leroy is in the white part of town. And there's a scene where he walks into a restaurant and is served, and he interacts cordially and kindly with the waitress. Shortly after that, he uh, goes into the hotel, and there's the bellhop in this white part of town, and he treats him kindly, with respect. And then a little bit later, he's in a church building in the white side of town. And again, in his interactions with the pastor, respectful and kind and courteous. Now, later on in the movie, Leroy is seen in the black part of town. 
And we see a scene of him in a restaurant interacting with a waitress. And he deals with her cordially and kindly. A minute later, he's in a hotel. There is the bellhop. Again, he treats him with dignity and kindness. And then, of course, the third scene in a black church. And the black pastor is treated with dignity and respect. What would the director be doing in showing us those two parallel scenes? I think we all know. He'd be telling us something about Leroy's character. And about how he treats those who are white and those who are black the same in an era when many were not. I bring that up because that's exactly what's going on in the Gospel of Matthew that we just read here, this this passage that we just read. There are five stories in our passage, right? So the first is with the Canaanite woman. The second is kind of a summary healing. The third with the feeding of the 4,000. The fourth with the exchange with the Pharisees and Sadducees about signs. And the fifth with the disciples about bread, right? The first four of them are echoes of stories that we've seen elsewhere already in the book of Matthew. So think about the story of the Canaanite woman. There, is, there are only two stories in the book of Matthew where Jesus heals someone remotely, where he's not there with them healing them, but it's remotely. The other one is in chapter 8. Both stories are about a Gentile. There in chapter 8, it's a centurion. Here, it's a Canaanite woman, but both of them are Gentiles. And in both stories, he ends up commending their faith. So for the centurion, he says, there's not faith like this in all of Israel. And for the Canaanite woman, he says, oh woman, great is your faith. So you see an echo, the same story told a little bit different, but the same idea. The next story we have is this summary statement, which is so generic we might not notice it as an echo, unless, except for that Matthew's placed these two summary statements in such close proximity with one another. So here in the middle of chapter 15, look back just to the end of chapter 14, there's another summary statement about Jesus being in a place, healing many, all who touch his garment are made well. And here, all who are being laid at his feet are being made well, an echo. The third one is, is probably the most obvious. I remember as a kid, I would be reading through, and I didn't, you know, I didn't pay attention to 5,000 and 4,000. I don't know why I didn't catch it. I'm like, I feel like I just read this story. Yeah, just, just in chapter 14, we heard the story of Jesus feeling the fi- feeding the 5,000. And, and the way the plot unfolds in that story is almost identical to how the plot unfolds with him feeding the 4,000 here. And then the fourth, this exchange with the Pharisees and Sadducees, is again so closely parallel to what happened in chapter 12 where the Pharisees come to him and they ask for a sign. 
And Jesus' response in chapter 12 to the Pharisees as they asked for a sign is, no sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation except for the sign of Jonah. So what gives? Why are these stories being echoed? Well, look at verse 21. It says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now those are Gentile cities in a Gentile region. Jesus, born the Jew, born the son of David, has been spending most of his time in Galilee and other areas that belong to the Jews. But now, he's in the region of the Gentiles. And lest you think it's only at the beginning of that story, look at how the, uh, the summary statement of him healing many ends in verse 31. It says, And they glorified the God of Israel. In other words, if they are using the language of the God of Israel, that means the ones who are doing it are not people of Israel. These are Gentiles. So do you see what Matthew, the director, is doing? Show these scenes that take place in Jewish territory and now show echoes of these scenes taking place in Gentile territory. It's showing something about the character of Jesus, right? That he is not just the Savior of the Jewish people, but he is the hope of the nations, the Savior of all. If you're paying attention and been following along in our series of Matthew, you might go, wait, hold on a second. I remember back to chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he says to them, go to the lost sheep of Israel, when he sends out his disciples. And maybe you think of John chapter 1, where it says, Jesus came to his own people. So, what's going on here? You're saying that Matthew's showing us this this Savior of all people, and yet it's clear from Jesus' own words and from the Gospel of John, Jesus came particularly in a unique way to the people of Israel. So what gives? Well, what I'd like to do is just kind of move through each of these five scenes. And I think as we do, we'll get our answer to that question. In fact, I think we will right out of the gate. So the first story is there from 21 to 28. Jesus has been ministering and and really exhausting himself and his disciples in ministry. Giving and giving and giving. And so they they need a bit of a respite. They withdraw. And they go into Gentile regions where this Jewish Messiah would be less well known. And as they're walking along in this region, a Gentile woman comes and starts calling out, pleading for his help. She calls him Lord. 
She calls him son of David. And she explains that her daughter is suffering under demonic oppression. And she knows not what to do except for to come to this great king of the Jewish people who is doing such mighty things and call out to him and asks and asks repeatedly for help. In a surprise move, Something that catches us off guard if we've been following Jesus up to this point. He doesn't do anything. Now, the disciples notice something's going on. He's not doing anything. She keeps following us. And they seem to be a bit bothered by this constant wailing in the background. Now, they ask Jesus to do something. It may very well be that they're asking him to just heal her and send her away and we can have our respite. But in response to this request, Jesus says something. Something peculiar. Look there in verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what's going on there? In a certain sense, the statement is true. When Jesus came to this earth, he had a focus and priority on reaching the people of Israel, whom in the Old Testament God had designed this people to be a people who would be a light to all peoples and bring the gospel through them to all people. So he comes focusing particularly on the house of Israel, which is what he said to his disciples in chapter 10. In fact, I think if if the story just ended here, if it ended after verse 24, we would say, yeah, Jesus was, was really only forever for the people of Israel. But remember, this statement is given here as part of a wider story. And by the end of the story, this Jesus who just said he comes only to the lost sheep of Israel has healed a Canaanite woman and said her faith is great. And then he walks to a mountain where they start, the Gentiles start flocking to him and these Gentiles he is healing left and right. And then he gathers these Gentiles together. This guy who says I'm only for the lost sheep of Israel and he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. Doesn't sound like the actions of somebody who's come only to the lost sheep of Israel. So, what's going on here? What is he doing? Jesus had a way of seeing into the human heart. And as soon as he sees this woman, he sees that there's something beautiful and pure about her faith. And what he's about to do is to draw that faith out, put it on display for all, all the disciples and eventually all who would read the story to see. One great commentator, R.T. France, says, he appears like the wise teacher who allows and indeed incites his people to mount a victorious argument against the foil of his own reluctance. I don't know if you have ever done this. 
with, I do it all the time with my kids. I kind of play devil's advocate a little bit with them to actually teach them. So let's say I'm teaching them basic math. That's something I've been doing a lot recently with their age. And so I tell them 2 plus 2 equals 5. And they know that it equals 4. But by saying, no, no, it equals 5, I put them in a position where they have to prove to me that I'm wrong and that they're right that 2 plus 2 equals 4. So they get out their little candies or their fingers or whatever and try and show me that 2 plus 2 does indeed equal 4. And in allowing them to do that, I actually solidify in their own mind and help them and their siblings see how math works by saying 2 plus 2 equals 5. Now, I think that's somewhat what Jesus is doing here. Yes, there's a certain sense where he does come in a focused way to the house of Israel. But by by emphasizing that only, and, and in this situation, he is giving a chance for this woman's faith, this beautiful faith, to be displayed for all. And so what does she do when she hears this word, these words of faith? Does she say, oh, that Jesus, he's not for me. I came to the miracle worker, and he rejected me, a Gentile, in favor of the Jews. I'm done. No, she goes, and she bows at his feet in desperation. You must, you must help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me. And then the most shocking statement of all. What Jesus says next. In verse 26. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Even today, where dogs are much loved animals, people don't like much to be called a dog. Imagine how the Pharisees would have responded if they had heard Jesus say something like this to them. They would have gotten uppity and and defended themselves. Oh, Jesus, do you know who you are? Uh, Look at all these things you've done wrong, and you're here calling us dogs. Ha! Enough of you. They They would have made their list of why Jesus isn't in any position to be able to make such statements. That they are the ones who, they would, they would probably rehearse their religious pedigree and say, look at the great things we've done. And you call us dogs? Well, this is just one more evidence about how ignorant you are, Jesus. Look at, you, you must not know. And then they talk about Abraham and all the way down the line, all the way ending up with themselves, the leaders of this great religious people. And you call us dogs. But that's not how the woman responds, is it? Not at all. She understands her desperate need and her low place. She understands Jesus is her only hope. And so she just embraces the title. Yeah, I'm nothing. I, I don't have anything to warrant myself to you. I don't bring anything that says, look what the great things I've done. I'm a child in this household. Give me food. I deserve it. Yeah. I'm just a scavenge, a savage dog. But, but, even dogs get some crumbs. I need just a morsel here, Jesus. And you can provide it. That 
is beautiful faith. Look at Jesus' assessment in verse 28. O woman, great is your faith. The word there in the Greek is megale. Megale or mega faith. We use that word mega today, don't we? This woman, Jesus says, has mega faith. He wants her faith, her example to teach all of us. This is faith. This is mega faith. What what does it mean that her faith, why is her faith called mega? I just want to look one other place because I think this is helpful. Look just one page ahead in chapter 18. In 18 verse 1, the disciples are having a nice little discussion. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Jesus' kingdom, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Same word, the megaleist. Which one of us is going to be the megastar? The megale in the kingdom of heaven. And look how Jesus responds in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest, the megale, the megastar in the kingdom of heaven. To have mega faith, I think there are two essential ingredients. And the first is this Humility. I don't deserve anything. I'm not here because I'm so worthwhile that I'm so great. I'm just in desperate need. I need you. That posture of brokenness, helplessness, humility is what makes her faith great. And then the other ingredient besides that sense of helplessness, that sense of desperate need, is a sense of the greatness of the rescuer. She sees that there is a big Savior. She's not abandoning Him. She's staying latched onto Him because He is the one who can save. He is the Lord, the Son of David, the one who can actually do something about her desperate situation. So... If you think about the ingredients of mega faith, it is a big Savior and a helpless me. That's great faith. That is the faith this woman had that Jesus wanted to be on display for all. And that is what we see so beautifully pictured here. And so Jesus heals her daughter. And as soon as he says the word, she's healed. End of scene one. That brings us to the second scene. I've already commented about it, just the the parallel with the end of 14 and here. Both are situations where, where there are There are people who are coming and flocking to Jesus and being healed. 
here, there are some differences. Here, here, Matthew tells us that there are lame, blind, crippled, and mute being brought to him. And he says that the people see the blind seeing, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the mute speaking. Now in chapter 14, did you notice how it ends? And the many were made well. As many as touched his garment were made well. The biggest difference between the two is how this one ends. It doesn't end with the healing. It ends with these Gentile people praising the God of Israel. And they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus has a Gentile woman teaches with what faith is. Now Matthew has the Gentile crowds teach us how to glorify God. End of scene two. On to scene three. The same crowd now has been with Jesus for days. Their food has run out. And Jesus, his heart of compassion, says, I don't want to just send them away now that food's gone because I'm afraid that they'll grow faint and weary on these roads And so, just like we saw in chapter 14, he tells the disciples to feed them. Now his disciples say, well, where are we going to get this food? And you might think, how dull can you be? You just saw how he was going to provide the food. In fact, some people think maybe the disciples are begging the question. They're wanting to egg him on, see another miracle. But I think the real issue here is the change in scenery, the change in locale. Yes, it's expected that Jesus will provide and invite the Jews to his great feast where he repeats the feats of Moses except for in greater power feeding the masses. But they are no, they're under no assumption that the same type of thing would be done with the masses of Gentiles. Why would Jesus, who came to the lost sheep of Israel, be inviting Gentiles to his miraculous feast? Why would they be allowed to partake? So it's not even, I think, on their mind that this is what he intends to do here. Or if it is, they're a bit incredulous. That's not going to be happening, so where are we going to get the food? But just like in chapter 14, Jesus takes these loaves and the fish. And again, how the miracle exactly plays out, whether it breaks and then grows new, and breaks and grows new, or whether in the breaking, food just appears because God is mighty. He spoke the world into existence. And so God Almighty here on earth feeding His people can certainly speak bread into existence. But however it happens, the masses are fed. And it says, you know, we think of feeds the 5,000, feeds the 4,000. That's just because in those days, they actually counted, when they would count, they'd count kind of households. They'd count the male heads. 
And he says, look, it was just the male heads. There were also women and children there. So if you just do some basic estimations, three and a half people per family, something like that, which is probably bigger than that, you're over 10,000 people. Again, an astounding number with such a small amount of food. And again, Jesus shows that each person doesn't just get it just enough to make the journey. They all can gorge themselves until they're full. And there are seven huge baskets full of food left over when they're done. But the remarkable thing here is not the miracle itself. We just saw that a chapter ago. That's where we're astounded at the miracle that Jesus can do this. The astounding thing here is that he is doing it amongst Gentiles. If you want to get a, a little bit of the vibe, imagine this miracle taking place, Jesus feeding the masses in the deserts of Iran or on the hillside in Mexico, or in the crowded streets of Calcutta. Jesus is doing something profound here. He's making a statement. I don't know where you come from as you come to church today. But maybe you look and you say, church is full of churchy people. And I don't really feel like I fit. Churchy people are, to me, a little bit weird, a little bit different. I don't understand them. And it's just not who I am. Chapter 14, in a sense, is Jesus breaking the bread for the churchy people. But right now, Jesus is breaking the bread and feeding you. He's saying, I came for you. I came for everybody. The people whose parents were Baptists and whose grandparents were Baptists. And the people whose lives have not resembled anything churchy. He's come and he invites all of us. All of us to the feast. Jesus wants you to eat. He wants to be your Savior. And so ends scene three. Scene four, which begins in chapter 16, echoes, as I said, what happened in chapter 12, a previous exchange there. This time the Sadducees have been added into the mix. They've sent their delegation, likely from Jerusalem, to test Jesus and see, okay, what is this guy really about? And of course what they want is a sign. They want that kind of pizzazz, that power, that dynamic thing that none of us will be able to deny. And we'll see, this guy's from God. And Jesus again says, look, what's going on? I mean, just take a step back. Here's a guy who has been calling people to repent and turn from their wicked ways. Here is a man who's saying, I came to deal with sin. I am the the Savior, saving people from their sin and the brokenness of their heart. 
He's a man who's come and he's, and he's healing the many and he's reaching out into the Gentile lands and drawing them to Christ or to himself, to God and his kingdom. The Pharisees look on and they're not convinced. They want something different. So they're asking for a sign. And Jesus says, you've missed it. He says, what, goods are, what good is signs going to do you anyway? All that he's done, and, it, and it's not enough. Here, here they're, they're putting him to the test. And they're saying, look, we, we want more drama. We want more spiritual highs. But signs never suffice, do they? Remember the story of Jonah? We studied this as a church some time ago. Jonah's drowning caught in weeds at the bottom of a sea. And in the most odd and unlikely turn of events, God appoints a fish that has a big enough gut to swallow this guy so he doesn't drown in the water. Still not a real good situation being in the belly of a fish, though. So Jonah gets to a point where he says, okay, I'm going to be faithful to you and go preach to those heathen Ninevites. And God says, okay. And the fish comes and vomits Jonah up onto the beach. There's only one person who witnesses Jonah's remarkable salvation, the sign of the fish. None of the Ninevites see it. Sailors that threw him in the ocean don't see it. Jonah alone sees it. At the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah's heart is still unchanged. Even though he saw the sign. Meanwhile, Jonah goes into Nineveh and preaches the shortest sermon in the history of the world. I think it's like five words or something like that. And the whole city repents at the preaching of Jonah. The message that he proclaimed, they believed and they repent. So in the book of Jonah, signs did no good, and it was the preached message that did good. Jesus is traveling about preaching, and these Pharisees are not hearing it. They cannot see. They cannot understand the profound things that Jesus is laying before them. They can't see that the one who is greater than Jonah, who will go down not into the belly of a fish, but into the belly of the earth, and not be vomited up, but, 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 but actually come back from the dead. They can't see it. The signs aren't going to do them any good. The signs never change anyone. If they did, the Pharisees would have been able to look on at all these people being healed, at the many people being fed, and they would have been able to believe. But, but Jesus says, look, a farmer doesn't need a weatherman to tell him what the weather's going to be. You can just make some basic observations because he's an experienced man with the ground and the earth and the air. And he knows what the immediate weather is going to be just based on the signs. And he says, shouldn't a religious teacher be able to look at what I'm doing right now 
and see that, that the promised one of the Old Testament, the one who brings all the themes long prophesied together, is right here in your midst. Look, if you can't do that because you're such an evil and adulterous generation, signs aren't going to do you any good. And sure enough, he would die. And he would rise. And these same Pharisees would see that happen and still not believe. If you're one of those who thinks that, boy, if God just did the spectacular, just did the amazing thing that I couldn't deny, then I would know God is real. I think you need to take a step back and evaluate that. And how easily we explain away our experiences. How quickly we're able to say, yeah, that was just then. (laughs) And it kind of fades away. Don't even remember that. But Jesus says, look, study the scriptures. You can go back to them over and over. It's something that makes sense that everyone can see and everyone can evaluate and see how they point to me. And that's, that's what should be compelling us. So he leaves, promising nothing more than the sign of Jonah, which, of course, would leave them unchanged. So you have the Canaanite woman, the Gentile, mega faith. And you have the Pharisees, zero faith. Of course, it says they came to test him. They're not people who have a big savior and a helpless me. They've got a big me, right? And I'll hear and test out the Savior. Zero faith. Now at this point, I want to pause in the sermon and give us two, two pictures. Pictures that are going to take place on a cliff on the side of the mountain. And I'm pausing here before the last scene... Because I think these first four scenes are all saying something profound about... These are the four echo scenes, right? And they begin with a great picture of faith, and they end with a person who has a zero faith. And I think these two pictures, the Canaanite woman and the Pharisees, are going to correspond to the two pictures on the cliff. So, bear with me. First picture is two seasoned, experienced climbers, rock climbers. These men are confident. They know what they're doing. They've scaled many rocky faces. And here they are, getting ready to climb. And they've got their equipment on. They've got their harness and the rope and the carabiner. And as good climbers are doing, they're looking at the equipment they have, making sure that it's the kind of equipment they should be using for their adventure. Not only making sure that there's no flaws in it, that it's still well built, that it's exactly what it should be, but also that it's on correctly and that it's something they can really rely on as they ascent this climb. But their confidence is in themselves and their ability to climb this, and they are evaluating then the equipment to see if it's worthwhile equipment to help them scale the rock. The other picture is of an amateur hiker who happened to be hiking. And took a terrible fall over the edge of the cliff. 
as luck would have it, there they are, and they fall about 10 feet, 15 feet, and there's a little ledge that just jets out from the rock. And they fall and kind of stumble, and they're holding on to this ledge. Just their fingertips are holding themselves from a horrible fall to their death. And so they start screaming out, Anybody there? Somebody help me! And their fingers are starting to shake. And they're white. And they're getting weak. And they close their eyes, squeezing them shut, trying to summon all the strength they have to just hold on a little bit longer with the chance that someone might come and rescue them. And then when their fingers are about to give way, they open their eyes and there is somebody standing right there with a rope down from the top that says, grab on. And with great gratitude and relief, without thinking about it, they grab on and hold on tight and are brought to safety. The first picture are the Pharisees, right? We're setting out on this religious journey to righteousness, to be a good, moral, upstanding person that will please the deities that be. And we realize we can't do this on our own. We need God. He needs to help us on this climb. Wouldn't be a very safe climb without God. So let's find out about this Jesus and see if he's really what we need and examine him. And maybe, maybe he'll be worthwhile equipment that we can use as we, the great climbers, climb this climb. Maybe he's not. We'll go on to the next equipment. And the second picture is the Canaanite woman. She knows her helpless situation. Her desperate situation. That if if this is about, in her case, being able to deal with demonic powers on her own, but I take a step back more broadly to all of us. Can I deal with the, the wickedness of my own heart? Can I deal with the the, the, the things that flow through me that aren't right and aren't good, can I deal with this, what the Bible calls sin, on my own? I can't. This isn't something I'm, I'm going to walk the path of righteousness and need a little help from God. I am about to fall to my death. And then Jesus comes and he says, I've come to deal with sin. I've come to take your sin, the wickedness, the poison that's in your own heart. And I've come to take that upon myself and and bear the, the weight of that, the penalty of that, and die in your stead to take the fall for you. And then to rise up, conquering the grave and inviting you to be a partaker in that forgiveness, in that grace, in that new life that is Yours in me. So there he is, hanging by the rope right there, ready for you to grab on and cling to him for salvation. Those are the two pictures that Jesus is painting for us, that Matthew is painting for us. And it's not that It's not that I I cannot ask questions of Jesus. I I ought to. There can be an examination of him. 
But once I have found out from the Scriptures who He is and what He is, then there's a posture of my heart that says, I've got to cling to this. I've got to cling to the Savior. It's my lifeline. It's my hope. Instead of a, I'm pretty strong. I can make it on my own. Right? Big Savior, helpless me. Mega faith. Big me, little Savior, zero faith. Right? Now we could end the sermon there. There is one more scene, and I think it's an important one. It'll be, it'll be brief, but I think it's important, right? So the, they, 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 in their haste, left the region. They forgot to bring bread. They're worried about the fact that they didn't bring bread, the disciples. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they go, oh my goodness. Jesus is talking about the fact that we don't have bread with us. And so they start discussing him. And they say, oh, were you supposed to bring it, James? No, I, I wasn't supposed to bring it. John, you were up. Oh, Matthew! You see what's going on when they have a discussion like that? Think about it. Are they thinking big savior, helpless me? No. (laughs) These guys just saw him feed 4,000 people. And before that, 5,000, really 10,000 and 20,000 people just before that. And they've seen him do all these miracles. You're sitting there, you don't have bread. If you're thinking about rightly, this great one, just go ask the guy who just fed 10,000 people, you might be okay about the bread. But that's not how they're thinking. They really are drifting towards being like those Pharisees. Which is the very thing Jesus is warning them about, right? If they realized Jesus could provide the bread, they wouldn't be focused on the leaven. They'd be focused on the word Pharisees. And so that's when Jesus comes and says, Oh, you, not of mega faith, of little faith. And he explains to them. He says, do you not understand or do you not perceive? Perceive what? And then he asks the questions. Do you remember what I did? Do you remember what I did? In other words, do you see me? Do you understand who I am? Now, at this point, they don't fully understand who he is. But by the end of Jesus' words here, they start to understand. And this is going to set us up for next week where Peter says something earth-shattering about who Jesus is. But for here, they at least understand that he's warning them against drifting towards the Pharisees. And I believe he's warning us too. Are we drifting toward Pharisee-like thinking that says, yeah, I need God. I mean... I'm a pretty good person. I've been raised well, good values. I'm a decent guy. And, but I, a decent guy knows he needs God. And, or are we like the Canaanite woman who says, I need you for I'm poor. Your help for I am blind. Savior of the world. Change my heart and my mind. I actually think it's not hard to have mega faith 
if we can see our own hearts correctly. When you're clinging to the face of the rock, it doesn't take much to grab on and hold on tight to Jesus. The problem is when we're puffed up in our view of ourselves and think we can make the climb on our own. If you just need Jesus to be the rope to help you make the climb, if you just need God in some sort of help me along the way, then the naive optimism of secular humanism is is just the antidote. You're a basically good person. Just keep trying to be a basically good person and trust in the goodness of other people and everything's going to be okay. Yeah, that's rope. That's rope religion, right? Evaluate it, that's good. Okay, secular humanism, that'll do the trick. Let's start climbing. Or, or maybe, depending on your personality, it might be better to look to the uh, imposed righteousness and the rigors of Islam. Be good. Do righteousness. Or do what's righteous. You must. Oh, I gotta be righteous. Here's a religion that calls me to be righteous. I look at its followers. Some of them that I know are very decent people, family people, so I'm drawn to that. God can be this little rope. I'll evaluate it. Yeah, that'll do the trick. I'm going to start climbing and be that righteous person. That's if you're in the business of examining the right equipment for your climb to righteousness. But if you look at your own heart and you see, you see yourself for what you are. I see myself for what I am. And I see even a pastor who was raised in a Christian home has a heart that is just so foul and could easily just teeter off the edge into the worst. I'm clinging to the edge of the cliff and I need a rescuer. And if that's my state, then Jesus, who died for me, to deal with my sin is the one who will embrace. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. I quoted John 1 at the beginning where it says Jesus came to his own people. And then it says after that but his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. He didn't just come to the Jews. In fact, here we have the two examples. It's the religious people in their nice-looking attire with their plastic faces that are testing and evaluating him and have the zero faith. He came for the nation. For all who would receive him. All. In Christ. Let's pray in Christ's name.